Hello everybody, we all have listened about water clusters and atmosphere reactions as well as rate reactions, uh, but how does it really work or affect our life? Today, Dr. Takahashi and I, we both are going to make this science edible for everybody. Así que toma pulque y come nopal, que el pulque podcast va a comenzar. <laughs> Okay. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome mm -hmm. Dr. Takahashi. Dr. Takahashi, good night. Welcome. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Doctor, how would you describe yourself? Uh, I know you studied uh, physics in, in Texas. No, 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 no. Uh, well, pretty much I was actually a chemist, chemist. by training, and then in a university in Japan, KO. University and after graduating from PhD, I actually came here as a postdoctoral fellow. And then after working here for about a year and a half, I moved on to Colorado. And then in 2009, I came back to Taiwan again to start my lab. And my background, I would say, is theoretical chemistry. So we use computers to predict properties like vibrational spectrum or reaction rates. Which programs do you use in order to, to get those, those rates? So half are commercial programs like Gaussian or Mopro. Others are programs I wrote myself. And some others are what I would call academic programs, which other research labs have kind of written, like MultiWell is another program that I use. Okay, I see that you have a very broad experience in this topic with more than 11 years doing research here in Taiwan. Yep. And also, I, I could read that your master's and your postdoctoral degree, you both did them with uh, Dr. Satoshi. Yes. So How was that, um, that experience or why with the same professor? Can you tell us a little bit more? Pretty much why I studied with Satoshi actually goes back because I was an undergrad, third year, and in Japan, in the senior year of college, you have to decide on which lab to join. And at that time, computation speed and things were getting faster. Internet was just beginning. And in the boom. Yeah. Right? And I, I felt. It's awesome. I don't have to do experiments. I can let the computer calculate while I sleep. So that's kind of what I, how I got interested in calculation. And Yabushita, Satoshi, I call him Yabushita Sensei. Yabushita Sensei, okay. Right. And then he was someone in class that I can understand what he was saying. Some professors, some classes, I don't, I didn't, I couldn't understand yeah. <laughs> what they were talking. And I know, said, I know what you mean. So I said, oh, this guy, I understand what he's talking. So if I understand that guy, I can probably talk with him and do research. And then pretty much I just stayed with him because I felt comfortable discussing with him. And he gave me all the freedom to do the research. And of course, if I had a problem, I can knock on his door any time of the week and just say, Yabushita-sensei, I got a problem. I don't understand this. How would you say it in Japanese? Yabushita-sensei, matakawakarimasen. Can you help me? Is taskete kudasai. And then he's like, ah. Oh. And then, but you have to remember, you shouldn't go at 7 o'clock at night because 
that's the time he's eating his instant noodles. Okay, <laughs> good to know. And professor, doctor. Yeah, Takahashi. I'm not a professor actually. Yeah. I'm a researcher. You're you're a professor sometimes, right? In here in NTU, which courses do you give? Um, I am part of. Taiwan International Graduate Program, which is a graduate school program for Academia Sinica. And for that, I give courses like advanced physical chemistry or computational material science, and sometimes topics that are related to chemical physics, which is part of a class with um, the physics department. Pardon me, Dr. Kaito, but sometimes I don't know if call you professor, doctor, or Tongshui. Because <laughs> for the people who are listening here, uh, Dr. Kaito was my first friend uh, who was a researcher here in NTU. We used to take uh, Chinese class together. Yeah, he was my classmate, Tongshui. Yeah, we are Tongshui. So uh, sometimes I'm going to... Just say Kaito, it's okay. Okay, Kaito. Thank you very much. Yeah, I only know him as Gongli. Gongli. So <laughs> So when you sent the email with Rolando, I said, I don't know Rolando. <laughs> okay, I'll try to put my Chinese name <laughs> Yes, I, I only know Gong Li because we were Chinese classmates. And in, the, in class, we have to use our Chinese name. So. Gao Chiao. Gao Chiao, hey, he remembers. <laughs> of course, yes. Okay. Um, Kaito, so going back to the topic, mm -hmm. uh, you told me that you do calculations using vibrational spectrum to, let's say, explain the salvation shell of water clusters. Can you tell us about a little bit more about this? Okay, yes, that's one of the early work that I actually did um, when I got to Taiwan, probably 2009 to 2013 or 14. This was something I was very interested in, using computation to predict vibrational spectrum. And the question we wanted to answer at that time was how many waters are going to surround the hydroxide cluster. And I think if I'm going to explain this, I have to explain what is a cluster and so on. So Yes, uh, for the people that don't know what a cluster is, is uh, water in the atmosphere, it, um, water can make hydrogen bonds. So when there are many water molecules doing a hydrogen bond, you can get like a sphere or a circle, right? Am I right? You're right, but the clusters we studied were very small, so we only had like two, three, four, or waters around and so on. And Three to four molecules of water. Right, okay. around the hydroxide. And why that's interesting, I think I can go through and explain to you with yes. my PowerPoint. So, and as you can see on my PowerPoint, it's if you're kind of no um, research in Taiwan, you can see at the bottom I have National Science Council. And now it's actually Ministry of Science and Technology. And so this is the work that I did in the early times when it was NSC. So. Let's look through. So why, okay. I held it. No, it's not. Okay, so why would we want to study 
water or how many cluster water molecules are around a hydroxide. That's because a lot of our chemistry, like acid-base reaction, is dependent on how the hydroxide, OH minus, which is a very, probably you know in chemistry, it's a basic molecule, and how that reacts will depend on how much water is solvating this hydroxide. And in some early times, people try to calculate this hydroxide in liquid water using computers. So they use simulation to calculate. And unfortunately, or fortunately, two groups did the calculation and came up with two different results. One group said, oh, there's going to be three waters around okay. the hydroxide. So you have hydroxide, OH minus. And on the other side, you have three waters sticking on with their hydrogens. And, okay, but another group came up and said, no, 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 they're wrong. There's four waters around the oxygen of OH minus. And that was a kind of a controversy. Was it three or four? So all of these water molecules were surrounding this uh, hydrogen, hydroxide molecule via uh, the hydrogen bond? Pretty much hydrogen bond, OH minus. But okay. you have to remember, OH minus is an ion, and yes. negatively an charged. Ion. So the negative charge is more localized near the oxygen of the OH minus. That's why the water with the H2O, I think you know water molecule, with this OH, they like to point toward the oxygen of the hydroxide, which okay. you kind of see here. And so this was computation, and this was also liquid. And now, what happened? Some ex smart experimentalists, this is early 2000s, said, why are we studying this very complex condition of OH minus in water, liquid water, surrounded? That's too hard. So let's just take out. OH minus with one water molecule, OH minus with two water molecule, OH minus with three water molecule, and four and five. So how did he separate this? He separated by mass. If you by mass. If you have one water, two water, three water surrounding, the mass will be different by the mass of one water molecule. Of course. So that's how he can separate the results for one, two, three, four, five water molecules surrounding OH minus. But he can only give the mass. That means he doesn't know if the water molecules all are around the OH minus, or maybe it's making a different network, a water network. Okay. And <clears throat> let's see here, his experimental spectrum for one water, two water. And if you look at two water, you can see OH minus will be surrounded by two waters with OH pointing toward it. This is what we will call ionic hydrogen bond, IHB. And then it's going to have two OHs that are free. Now if you go to three, it's going to have three. And then at four. So when you look at the experimental spectrum for two and three, they look similar. But when he went to number OH minus water four, he saw some differences. He saw some different trends here. And he used 
a model and said the peaks that are shown here are coming from the second salvation shell. So this, this peak here comes from this DD water. And this peak here comes from this water right here. And if you can count the number of waters around the OH minus, it's one, two, three. And then this water is making a so-called second salvation shell. So he said, in, if we start to count, it's going to be three. So this second salvation shell, it wouldn't be bonded uh, to the main hydroxide. It would be bonded to another, to the water, two water molecules that are bonded to the uh, hydroxide. Right. So, what in the language of kind of chemistry, we like to say we have an ion, and then the first salvation shell will be the first water around, right around the ion, and then after around this first salvation shell, we'll have a second one. So it's like a ion first salvation shell, which is surrounded by the second salvation shell. Okay. So in his experiment, he looked at peaks here and said, I see the peak for the second salvation shell. For the people who are only listening to us, we are looking at this chart of four spectrums of um, each one of them done with different quantities of water molecules. And we are discussing about the, the third one or the D1 in case you guys need to see. You can go to our YouTube and, and see over there the images and have a little bit more clearer idea in case you don't have it very clear. And we can see all the, um, all of these uh, peaks that Dr. Kaito is telling us. So now here's where the computation comes in. So, right, the experimentalists took the spectrum and they assigned this region. But in the lower frequency region, so this is um, what we like to use, the energy, and you can kind of see inverse centimeters. And you have this big blob here yes. in this region. They didn't tell us what that was. And now if you put this water cluster, OH minus, with four waters, yeah. we can calculate a structure that they gave us. We can also calculate the structure that has four waters directly bound to the OH minus. So the coordination would be four. First there salvation shell will be four. There wouldn't be a second salvation shell. So in this case, if it's OH minus four waters, right, it will be all first salvation, salvation shell. Okay. So we did the calculation. Our calculation said the energies for the two we call confirmation. The three coordinated, which has three waters around the OH minus, and the yes. four coordinated, which has four water molecules in the salvation, first salvation shell, had equal energies. And that means you should see both, right? And oh, when we did the calculation, which I'm kind of showing you here, in the background, you have the experimental results. And inside, I have the results for what I would call three coordinated water or 
three water molecules in the first solvation shell given in green. And then I have the results for four coordinated or four waters around the OH minus in the first solvation shell given in red. And the blue will be the sum of those. And if you look at the spectrum, it is right that the two peaks that Johnson and coworkers assign indeed are from the green, which is from this three coordinated water. But the big blob that they did not assign, you can see this whole red yeah, line. Yeah, big, big. This full thing is attributed to this four coordinated. Oh, to these four coordinated molecules. Right. Okay. So this tells you that when you're trying to assign a spectrum, it can be a mixture of many different conformations, and you need the computation to really tell you where the peaks of these four coordinated or three coordinated waters will be. In order to achieve, a, let's say, a correct answer, a, mm -hmm. a correct resolution for this experiment, how many times did you repeat your, your experiment or did you repeat the, how many times did you run the program? The calculation, we, we calculate, well, to calculate this, we have to calculate the, how the energy changes as different water orientation is taken. Okay. And we calculate the OH. So in the infrared spectrum or this IR spectrum, vibrational spectrum that we are looking at, we are looking at how much energy you need for an OH bond to stretch. And so that's why we have to see how the energy changes for, you can see there's for four water molecules. Each one has two, yes. so there's eight. And then you have one of the OH minus. So you actually have nine OHs that you have to consider. And we considered all of them to properly get this peak. Okay. So that's kind of a small conclusion that in the end, the experimentalists said they only see three coordinated or three water molecules in the first solvation shell, but it turns out that the part that they couldn't assign or they didn't look at had the signal for the four coordinated water, which means maybe it's not just four or three. It's a mixture of three and four. That is what's happening in real liquid water situations. Okay, Dr. Kaito, and why is it important for us young people to research about this or to get into this field of researching in this type of atmospheres, water molecules, and um, so all your research? What I would say is, um, so I come from the computational side. So I'm a, I like to use computers and experimentalists are doing experiments to see something and we kind of are looking at the same thing from two different angles. The experimentalists does the experiment so they look at the full problem okay but they don't know like as I said for their experiment they know it's OH minus with four water molecules but they don't know if whether they are it's stretching or what, the shape. Right, they don't know the shape. Yes. We computational can find the shape. 
But just finding the shape is not the answer, and we have to find, calculate some observable. How would this shape change some observable? How would another shape give a different observable? And that's the part where we calculated the vibrational spectrum, and that's how we were able to do a one-to-one -one comparison with the experiment, and they did probably a very good detailed experiment. That's why you can see the plot of the experiment and the theory to be fairly consistent. Okay. It's, they had the answer, but in their analysis, they only looked at a certain part of the spectrum. And I feel for me, it's very, I was very lucky that they actually took a very good spectrum, even down to this 2,500 inverse centimeters, because if they just stopped at 35 or 3,300 centimeters, you will not see the signal yes. that corresponds to the four coordinated. And did you, as a researcher, you ask to the experimentalistic team to take it in a certain length or they do the experiment and they give you the, the results or is it you the one like leading the, what you want as a result? It depends. So usually an experimentalist will say, we took this and this is what we got, but we don't know why. Oh, okay. And then we'll say, well, I calculated and I think this is because of this, but to certain, be certain about this, can you do another experiment so we can confirm if this kind of prediction or this calculation, if this calculation is right, you probably might see another observable in another region. Can you do that? And that's how we interact with experimental groups. Okay. That also continues on for the reaction rate calculation too. Can you tell us about the rate uh, calculations? So we were, I think that's about four or five years ago. So four or five years ago, we were kind of, I did the vibrational calculation and I'm a chemist and chemists like to see changes. <laughs> yes. We like to see color change or something. And for chemists, reaction is fun. Yeah, like uh, for people who don't know exactly what are we talking about when we say rate of reaction, we can bring a very easy example. Rate of reaction is how long is it going to take to something to have a change, such as uh, in how long time does uh, wood is going to burn or in how long time something is going to change of color, in how long your food yeah. is going to go bad. Yeah, how, how bad you, yeah, how quickly your <laughs> food will go bad. Yeah, that depends on temperature and it also depends on humidity and that's kind of one of the questions that I was interested in. And you can kind of see the theme that I've looked at all has water molecule. Yeah. That just happens How about pressure? Does pressure affect the rate? Uh, yes, it will. It a will chemical change. rate? Okay. It will change. If you think about it, if you put high pressure, a lot of the molecules will be They are tightened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Closer. That could change the how the reaction would proceed. It can even change probably the product in some cases. Okay. And I think I'll be talking a little bit about some calculations for some 
reactions that are important in the atmosphere. And this is kind of um, a personal kind of way that I think. And I'm working in the Institute of Atomic and Molecular Sciences of Academia, Seneca, which is a national lab. Okay. So, and our job is to do research. And when I think about what is the research that a national lab should be doing, and then one thing that I thought is it should be a research that a company would not do. That, that's my personal stance. A lot yes. of people have different stances. They say, okay, you should do research that will help the company. But my stance, at least the way I, I look at it, is that if it is a research that a company would do, we will have researchers in the company do it. They have money to do a certain topic. And atmospheric research is something companies will not do unless, you know, to really check. Yeah. And, but at the same time, it is actually very important because atmosphere decides our weather, our life, and many things. And as we've seen um, the ozone hole problem and global warming and these issues are something that I think the basic research institutes or national labs can kind of look into. Stay tuned, people, because another uh, chapter talking about atmospheric problems is coming later, like in some weeks. So stay tuned. I let Kaito to keep on. <laughs> oh, just wanted to say that okay. um, that short, uh, okay. how to say, announcement. Okay. <laughs> I let you follow. Okay. Excuse me. So now I'm going to continue on. And so now... I think I talked about the water hydroxide. That was too early 2000s. Now yeah. we're going to move into early 2010. And around 2012, people were looking at atmospheric studies and they were doing experiments in the field. And if I say field, it means really doing outside measurements. And they were doing it in the um, forest of I think it was Norway or something. Norway forest okay and what's important is that when they were looking for or they were looking at the concentration of sulfuric acid in the atmosphere and when they did the experiment or they did the experiment outside in the forest and at the same time they ran a model to model the situation yeah. And what they found was that in the field, the concentration of sulfuric acid is much, much bigger than the model predicted. And they were pretty confident they had most of the important things in the model. So they were not sure what was causing the formation of this sulfuric acid that the model did not predict. Yes. And then they started to think, and they found out that when there were more trees, there were more sulfuric acid that were formed. And so they said, this has to do something related to trees. Okay. And at that time, they came up with this, um, not idea, but some hypothesis. Hypothesis. Right? Hypothesis that there might be another oxidizing source that will convert SO3 to 
uh, SO2 to SO3, which will make the sulfuric acid. And that unknown molecule they called carbonyl oxide. And this is something I think you've not heard. Chemists, probably a lot of chemistry students will know carbonyl. I know. Carbonyl oxide, it's one chain connected to a carbon, and then that carbon is connected to one oxygen, and that oxygen is connected to another oxygen. Mm -hmm. So we have one oxygen with positive charge and one oxygen with negative charge. Mm -hmm. And then the carbon is connected in another, into another chain. Mm -hmm. So it's in the middle, and it's, let's say, R1 connected to COO connected to R2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You did your homework. I did it, kind <laughs> of. <laughs> well, so this carbonyl oxide is kind of an interesting species. And why it's interesting and why it's in atmospheric context. So as I said, experimentalists found in the field that if they have more wood, they see more of this sulfuric acid. So what does trees give out? And trees can give out alkenes. Uh, alkenes are, you know alkenes? Chains with a double bond? Right. So these chains with double bonds can react with the ozone molecule in the atmosphere. Ozone molecules are three molecules of three atoms of uh, oxygen connected by a by a double bond that is changing of of oxygen. It's switching, <laughs> kind of switching. Right? Yeah, it's a triangular oxygen. Triangle. Triangle with three oxygens, right. And so these ozone will react with the double bond and it will go on top of the double bond. So if you can kind of see here, there's your double bond and okay. oxygen, oxygen, oxygen. And this is called a primary ozonide. And this is very exothermic. And if you kind of look at it, we start, let's just start with ethane, C2H4 with ozone. And then it goes down and forms this primary ozonide. So it's CH2 with O, O, and O. But it's very exothermic. Exothermic means it can release a lot of heat. Yes. And it's so exothermic that it breaks himself. So if you break an OO bond and a CC bond, what do you get? You get CH2OO and CH2O. So you get a carbonyl, which yeah. is C double bond O, and you also get carbonyl with an extra oxygen. And this is the carbonyl oxide. oxide. Okay. And of course, if you have more methyl groups, it will have different Kriegi, um, sorry, Kriegi intermediate is another name for carbonyl oxide. I remember in Chinese class, you used to talk a lot about Kriegis. Yes. So this process of ozone reacting with um, this alkene double bond and making this C double bond O, O, O was predicted by Dr. Kriegi. Doctor, um. And he 
in 1930s or something. Yes. And then that's why they call it the Kriegian Intermediate, but it was only recently when we were really sure to experimentally confirm this CH2O geometry. And These molecules. Right. And so now what is important is these carbonyl oxide with their extra oxygen at the tip can react with SO2 to make SO3. You can donate it oxygen. Yeah. And then after that, this SO3 will meet water and make sulfuric acid. So that was the predicted scheme that the hypothesis, I should say, hypothesis that was mentioned by the experimentalists. So they observed... Um the observed acid was because of the of this Kriegi molecule that was of this reaction that you just talked to us about that with was, ozone. They thought that this Kriegi intermediate, CH2O or others, will donate that oxygen to make the sulfuric acid. But now you have to think about another issue. This Kriegi intermediate or carbonyl oxide, I, I should use carbonyl oxide. Okay chemistry it's more probably correct and uh, and so this carbonyl oxide is very reactive that's why it was predicted to exist in 1930 but it took until now 80 years later to really see this carbonyl oxide geometry fully confirmed in the gas phase so now it's very reactive that means it can react with molecules in the atmosphere. Yes. So that, and then if you think about the gas in the atmosphere, what is the dominating gas in the atmosphere? Nitrogen, hydrogen. Right. Nitrogen, right? Nitrogen. Yeah. Hydrogen is the most in outer space. So. Hi, how? <laughs> <laughs> no, not that bad. <laughs> So nitrogen takes up about some, something near 78% or so, and then there's about oxygen that comes in second, and then we have water molecules. So the question we had was, if you're discussing about these molecules in the atmosphere, water might come in to play a role. As in, let's say you have this carbonyl oxide. Your SO2, I'm water. Will carbonyl oxide react with you, SO2, or react with me, water? We don't know which one. And that will depend on how fast the reaction rate will be. Okay. Because that is kind of the key point here is we want to know if, if there is a certain concentration of water, a certain concentration of SO2, and you have a carbonyl oxide, what is going to be the reaction rate for carbonyl oxide and SO2 or carbonyl oxide and water? And we looked at this water part. So now this figure is a figure of the carbonyl oxide in a computer reacting with water. So we're going to look at the simplest carbonyl oxide, CH2OO, and its reaction with one water or two waters. And on the left, I'm showing you the results for one water. So in the computer, we can let 
the um, CH2OO bind with a water molecule. This is what you were saying is hydrogen bonding. Yeah. And then we can calculate the energy for it to react, and we will calculate the transition state geometry, which is given here. And you can kind of see this is water molecule. It's donating its hydrogen to the carbonyl oxide uh, oxygen. And then the oxygen of the water is attacking the carbon bond. And then as a final product, you have something weird like here. So you have CH2OHOOH. And on the right-hand side, I have the reaction for two waters. And you can see that it makes a kind of a ring and then makes the product. And the product is now actually the same, CH2O, OOH, OH, but oh, it also right. has a water. Now, if I show you like this, it's actually very hard to really see. But what's good about a computation is we can look at how the reaction will proceed. So we can look at how the hydrogen is moving, how the oxygen is moving. And in this movie, you'll be able to see how water and CH2OO, one molecule, will react. Yeah. And you can kind of see... That um, the, the hydrogen goes to the oxygen, and then the oxygen rearranges. Yes. To, the, to form this carbonyl oxide uh, molecule connected to Wasita. So the key point is, if you look at it from the reactant, what yeah. you have to see is that the water and the CH2O are rotating to get to the right orientation. Yeah. And then it donates the hydrogen to the terminal oxygen, and the OH will go attack the carbon. carbon. Right. So this is one water. What happens if you have two? Okay, and if you have see. two, it is a bit different. And what is different? So if you have two, you see that the two waters are already aligned to make a ring around the CH2O. Yes. And if you calculate the, how the reaction would proceed, you will see this animation where now you're transferring two hydrogens at once yes. from one water to the second water, and the second water acts like a proton relay. He takes one from water one, gives his hydrogen to the carbonyl oxide. And if you compare the reaction for the two water and the one water, you can see that for this two water case, you don't have to rotate or orient. You just make the ring small and the hydrogens pop. Switch. Pop. Right. That means the reaction with two waters is faster. Am I right? And you are very correct. Okay. Gang okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? But then it's another issue of how much faster it will be and how that will depend on the temperature. So here I am showing you 
an Arrhenius plot. Do you, do you know what an Arrhenius plot is? Uh, yes, I know, but I don't have it in mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> so an Arrhenius plot, on the x-axis, we plot the inverse of temperature in Kelvin, 1 over Kelvin, I should say. And here I'm plotting 1,000 divided by temperature. So as you go to smaller values, that means you're increasing the temperature, because 1 over temperature. And on the y-axis, I have the log of the rate, and this is the unit. And the key point is at, and here I am plotting two values. Yes. This blue line is the results for one water. One water. This red line is the results for two waters, or the water dimer, we like to use that term, monomer and dimer. And what you see is here, no, it's about the same. It doesn't show that much of a temperature dependence. While on the dimer, you can see as the temperature is increasing, it goes down. Indeed, if you look at the log scale value here, here it's one, two, three, four orders of magnitude different oh, okay, okay. at room temperature, or 300 Kelvin. At 370K, so about 80K, you can see one, two, three. So the difference between one water reaction and two water, or the water dimer reaction, is changing as a function of temperature. Yes. And this is actually a very important thing. And this is why this was very interesting for me. And I'm going to skip through the fine details of the equations. Okay. But we have to calculate the rate as a um, concentration dependent, water concentration dependence. Because you okay. have to see in the atmosphere, in Taiwan, it's very humid. Meaning that there's a lot of water in the, in the air. Concentration. But if you go higher and higher, this concentration is going to get less and less. Or if you go to somewhere where it's dry, the concentration of water is small. Just so lower. how will this different concentrations affect the reaction? And that is something that is also important. So these are things that we can calculate. Now, what was the most interesting for us is that, once again, I am calculating the, constant, the temperature, inverse of temperature in the x-axis, and I'm calculating the reaction rate. But now, I'm going to do the water concentration at 5.4 times 10 to the 17 inverse centimeters, which I don't know if you, you don't have to know what that is, but it's 75% okay. relative humidity. So, ooh. Taiwan is about that much. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's very humid, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> what about Mexico? It's not that humid where I live. In, in the Moya, it's a little bit more dry. Right, but five times... 5.4 times 10 to the 17 molecules per cubic centimeter is about 75% relative humidity. And considering this concentration of water, we calculated the temperature dependence and the reaction rate in log scale. And you can see in green here, this green line is, is the monomer. Is the monomer. And it's going up as you increase the temperature. And here I think I've written out the temperature yes. in Celsius, in Celsius. You, so you can understand. And on the other hand, 
you have the water timer, which is given in pink, which goes down, down, and down. Now this blue line is the sum. The sum of them both. Yeah. So monomer and dimer contributions. And what is interesting is it kind of curves out, right? It saturates. Yes. And our experimental collaborators were nice enough to actually do the experimental high temperature. They said, we're doing atmosphere. It's not going to become 80 degrees uh, C Celsius. in the atmosphere. They, they said, no, it's not going to be, but we'll do the experiment because it's interesting to see if you can really predict this change as a function of temperature because usually you kind of expect it to be linear where yeah. as you increase the temperature, what's going to happen? But they believed our prediction and you kind of see this red line, red dots are their experimental results. Yes. And you can kind of see this saturation. And that's where I say we collaborate with experimentalists in trying to understand the problem. And the key point is indeed in an atmospheric context, which is room temperature and below, the water dimer reaction is dominant contribution and most important. And that's kind of how we can contribute to the atmospheric community, giving accurate rates for the reaction with water. Okay. And what's interesting is as the temperature gets higher, it is the one water monomer reaction that become dominant. And this is a kind of a scientific interest and scientific fun of seeing when does two water molecules affect the reaction? When does mon water monomer, when does water dimer? And this kind of is how I say I collaborate with. Originally, the um, project was given by the experimentalists. They said, we see that the reaction rate depends on the water concentration squared, not water concentration. And I said, oh, that's probably because it's water dimer that's reacting. It's second order reaction. Not one water. And then we started to look at it. And then indeed our calculation kind of did support their prediction and then they got interested in the temperature dependence and then that's how for an atmospheric context they only did the colder temperature they did room temperature to cool and when we did the calculation we said you're right for the atmospheric relevant temperature it is water dimer but if it goes higher we're going to see a different trend where water monomer contribution is higher is, is going to be higher and so the total will have a kind of a slope that is not perfectly linear but it's a curve and yes i'm very happy that jim lin my collaborator in academia seneca institute of atomic and molecular sciences and his students did the 80 degrees c results thank you very much guys and Dr. Kaito, to conclude this podcast, and yes. what could you say to the scientific society, <laughs> the future scientific society? Let's say my classmates and even I who are studying right now chemical engineering or they are into the science mm -hmm. uh, related topics. So my kind of stance 
or the way of thinking is I come from chemistry and and I come from physical chemistry and I think for me why something happens has always been a driving force I want to Being know why, curious. why something happens or what is the reason that something like this reaction happens or so on and that's where we stand to look at the problem of course for engineers they would say we don't need to know why as long as we can make the product or we can get the problem solved and I think this is a matter of two stances and I, I do agree for some problems you don't have to know why you can get an optimization of some reaction protocol without knowing why it is working. if you know why one thing about knowing why is you might be able to predict or give a totally different direction for doing the problem and that's kind of why I personally like to say it's important to look at why why something happens and or what's the reason that you're seeing this result and a lot of things for young scientists I want to say is there's a lot of things that textbooks don't really tell you the reason why something is happening and it might turn out that these curiosities can lead to a total change in technology too sometimes if you're lucky if you cannot read history make history people so <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Kaito, for accepting, accepting this invitation. Yeah. And just to conclude, I know that you love riding bicycle. Which is your favorite route here in Taipei? Which is my favorite route? Um, I would say I, I like riding around everywhere. So it's, any route is good. But By the riverside? But the most painful one is going from the oh, Gongguan area to the Dangshui. Oh, yo. Oh, <laughs> I had never done it, but Dr. Kaito just told us that it is painful. Thank you very much, doctor. Okay, thank you. Gongli, xie xie. Bo yong xie, bo yong xie. And we out.